Well, good morning. Do we hear? Yes, we do. It's lovely to see you all. Let us pray as we come to God's word. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you have gathered us as your people, as your children. We thank you for the great salvation that you have won for us in Christ. And we pray now, Father, that we understand the full benefits, the full joy of being your children. Know that we can come to you and call you Father, that you hear our prayers and that we have a real relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. When I travelled overseas, there was a lot to do. I had visas and passports to organise. There were tours to plan. I had to organise for leaving my job. I had to get immunisations. There was just a lot of planning and a lot involved in getting ready to go overseas. Everything I did was, was an anticipation for the three years I would be away from this country. It took me about six months to get ready to go. Many of the things we do in life are done in anticipation of a future event or something we know is coming up. It is just a fact of life. How many of us are starting to think about and think through what we are going to do for Christmas? And that is still a month away. Today we're coming to the point of God's law and we are going to see it is about anticipating something that is coming up. But that something that was coming up that the law anticipated, we now have. And that is faith in Christ. And since we now have that, there is no point going back to the law as the basis of our relationship. Today what we're going to see is that the, Paul, uh, that the law was an anticipation for Christ. But the reality is, rule keeping is no substitute for the real relationship we have with God through Christ. That's where we're going today. And as we look at the passage today, we need to keep a bit of what we saw last week in mind. We need to keep verse or chapter 3, verse 16. And verse 16 is the background for a lot of what Paul is saying today. And we read this in 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. God's promises find their focus in Jesus, who is the seed. To receive those promises to Abraham, we must come to Christ. He is the seed to whom the promises were always pointing. That is the argument Paul is making in chapter 3, that we are saved through faith alone in Christ. Given that God deals with humanity through promises that he makes to Abraham and those promises point to Jesus, you can hear the question coming, well then, if God deals with us by our basis with faith in Christ, what's the point of the law to Israel? What's its purpose if God was never, was never meaning for it to restore humanity 
to himself. And so we turn to verse 19 and Paul's question. And Paul gives the answer, because of transgressions. Verses 19 to 26 not only explain why the law was given, but why the law's reign has come to an end. Why the law's reign is over. So let us deal with the question in verse 19. Why did God give the law, uh, give the law to rule over Israel? And as I said, the answer is because of transgressions. You got it? Very clear, isn't it? These verses can be a bit confusing. But if you keep the context in mind, it isn't that hard to figure out the basic gist of Paul's argument. The question about the law deals with the time period between Abraham and Christ. Sin is in the world from the fall and people are continually rebelling against God. Paul argues that the law was placed upon Israel until sin or transgression would finally be dealt with in Christ. God gave the law as an interim solution. The law anticipated the coming of Christ. The law was put in place to show that sin is sin. All people, unfortunately I have to include myself in this, all people have an unfailing ability to ignore their sinfulness. Part of being sinful is that we ignore that we are very, very sinful. So our law, so the law shows our rebellion against God. The law highlights people's sinfulness by making their sins explicit through their transgressions against the law. To transgress just simply means to cross a boundary or a line. To cross a fence is to transgress a boundary. That is what it means for the Bible to transgress, to cross over boundaries set up by the law. The law shows that people are continually transgressing, continually rebelling against God through their transgressions. But here's the important thing about the law. The law doesn't stop people transgressing. It simply highlights that is what they are doing. It's the law's inability to stop transgression that makes it inferior to faith in Christ. That is what verse 20 is about. Verse 20 can seem very confusing. I read this week, there are roughly 300 different interpretations of verse 20. And from the little I've read, I'm sure they're underestimating the amount of interpretations there are. And you can get stuck in verse 20 and lose the main thrust of Paul's argument, which despite the difficulty people have with this one verse, the main point is still quite clear. That is, the law is inferior to faith in Christ. And this is Paul's point. I'm going to read the back half of verse 19 and verse 20. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Paul's focuses on how the law was put into effect through angels and mediators to demonstrate its inferiority to Christ. There are many parties involved in implementing the law to Israel. 
the statement that God is one seems to be uh, Paul's way of pointing to the promises coming straight from God, straight from God through Christ. The passage seems to be a short version of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. As in Hebrews, where Jesus is is seen as superior to the prophets, in the same way, the one God through the revelation of his promise is superior to all the mediators that took place it took to put the law into place god sending the law through mediators makes the law inferior to receiving the promises directly from god to placing your faith directly with god through christ i will say it again verses 19 and 20 are simply pointing to the inferiority of the law as opposed to the faith we now have in Christ. The law is a stopgap measure, highlighting sin until Christ arrives. My parents, when they first moved to the area, way, way back in 1975, they couldn't afford a refrigerator. So the first year they lived in the West, they made do with an esky and ice. They managed to get through the first winter, but then summer hit and they went out and brought themselves a refrigerator because they couldn't keep the foodstuffs cold any longer. The esky and ice, they were a stopgap measure, needing a longer-term solution. Last year, remember all the rain we had? I I certainly do. My car window wouldn't go up. So a few day, for a few days, whilst I waited to get it repaired, I stuck plastic bags over the windows to stop the rain coming in. The plastic bags were not a long-term solution. They actually made the car undrivable. The plastic bags were a stopgap measure to stop the rain until I could get the window fixed. Paul is saying that the esky and ice is the law. The law is the plastic bags over the window. It isn't the long-term solution, but it keeps the problem at bay until sin could finally be dealt with. But as Paul goes on, you might ask, if if the law exposes sin or makes sin more pronounced, is the law contrary to the promises? If the goal of God is to deal with sin, does the law making sin more pronounced, more clear, more abundant, somehow certainly, uh, somehow invalidate the promises of God? In other words, does God's law contradict the faith we now have in Christ? And Paul's answer is, most certainly not. As he says, if a law could give righteousness, then righteousness would have come through the law. His point is, that the law is not acting in counter to God's promises. Instead, it serves those promises by highlighting the need for people to place their faith in Christ. And it does so in two ways. And Paul uses two analogies to explain this. 
Firstly, he says in verses 21 to 23, the law imprisons us. The law should make sinful people aware that they are sinful. That is, the law condemns guilty sinners. The imposition of God's law upon humanity, emphasis on God's law, is that it is meant to be an imposition upon people. It is meant to be hard for people to do. God's law is, should be hard for people to do. They should go, wow, why are we going through all these rules and regulations? They're so hard to keep. And certainly, Israel struggled to keep it. In fact, the truth is, they didn't keep it. The law imprisons people deliberately to point out their sin and restrict it. The law acts as a prison because that is where guilty people deserve to be, in prison. Why do societies build prisons? They build prisons because they say to people in prison, we don't trust you. That when criminals are allowed to walk around in society, that they continually do bad things so bad that they can no longer be trusted with freedom because what they do with their freedom is abuse it by committing evil and because prisoners have continually been shown that they cannot be trusted they have to be restrained in a prison to protect others in society god's law is acting in a very similar fashion it's acting as a restraining mechanism, a break, as it were, to restrain sinful people from sinning as much. The law doesn't deal with the underlying issue, but it acts as a break to help God's society function. That's what people don't understand about laws. The fact that you need a law at all shows that there is a massive problem. The law doesn't deal with the problem, which is the human heart. It simply highlights it and acts as a stopgap until a more durable, long-term solution can be found. And that solution was faith in Christ. The law was just the break. It doesn't deal with our underlying heart. So that is the first point of the law. The law highlights and restrains sin by highlighting people's guilt. The second analogy that Paul uses is that the law is a schoolmaster or schoolteacher. The actual Greek word could be translated as child teacher. The analogy is of children needing to be taught or schooled on how to act. The idea being that children are largely ignorant and need constant guidance and stricture to actually grow and be safe. The law acts in a similar way. It's a school teacher, it's a guardian, it teaches, it instructs us. What does it mainly instruct? That we are sinful, that we are disobedient, that we do not want to listen to God. We do not want to listen to God, our creator, our maker. What do you know, God? We know better. And 
the law is highlighting humanity's constant desire to move away from God. It teaches people that we need a saviour. That was why the law is not contrary to faith and that is what Paul means by faith in this passage. It is the faith that God can deal with our problem of sin, that God has sent Jesus into this world to save us and restore us, to clear away the mess that we have created, to clear away those evil desires that keep bubbling up within us, to clear away our constant desire to say to God, get out of my life, I don't need you. The law is saying, yes, you do need Jesus. You do need his blood. You do need his salvation. The law is our teacher, but it is not the end. Verses 19 through 26 convey one simple message. The law's reign of the, over humanity is over. It is done with that God has given us a better way of relating to him and that way was always the way he wanted us to relate to him, to trust him and to trust his son, trust the blood of Jesus has paid for the forgiveness of our sins and that through that blood we have freedom as sons of God. We have freedom from the law in Christ. The spirit is the guarantee of that freedom. We have been given God's Spirit freely by His grace. Through the giving of the Spirit, God has given us a vibrant, living relationship with the one true, holy God. We now have, in Christ, through the power of the Spirit, a real relationship with God. And it is marvellous. And we get the Spirit we get this real relationship, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. This has massive ramifications for the way uh, we live our lives. And this is what Paul is going to go on to explain. Christians are no longer divided by worldly divisions. We do not need to prove ourselves to God. There is no Jew or Greek. That distinction between the Jew and the Greek has, is an a ethnic distinction. And in what he's saying is those distinctions, they no longer matter. That racial divisions have no place in the church. In fact, the truth is there is only one race, the human race. And if that being the case, all of God's people are one in Christ. There is no slave or free this is an economic category. With Paul saying that those divisions, those class and economic divisions, they have no place in the church. They exist in the world, but they have no place before God. We are not to evaluate people on the basis of their money or their class or their status or their job. In fact, we're not to uh, evaluate anybody on the basis of anything they do in terms of job or political power or political party, 
because we are now all one of Christ. None of them mean anything to God. We are all sinners needing a saviour. There is no male or female. That is, all people, both men and women, have equal access and dignity before God. When Paul wrote this, he was dealing with a highly segregated society where men had a higher legal status than women. In fact, Paul relies on people being aware of this status when he talks about our sonship. And I'll come to that in a moment. Paul's point here is simply this, that the way our world tends to divide people into groups has no standing before God. Christians have a new identity and that identity supersedes all other divisions that people make in the world. Our Christian identity is solely based on what Christ has done for his people. Now I need to take a short aside here because this passage is often abused today in our modern or contemporary context about gender ideology. Paul is not saying that there are no Jews or Greeks, that there are no differences in ethnicity, nor is he saying that there are no slaves or freemen. He's not arguing for the overturning of slavery. In his world at that time, the society would not have survived the economic turmoil and ruin that banning slavery would have caused. The society just wasn't capable of that type of labour change at that time. Paul's point is those distinctions play and have no place in the Christian church, which brings us to the liberal churches and the progressive Christianity of so many churches today. Paul is not saying that men and women no longer exist, that those distinctions in our being, in our nature, have now been abolished. Those that argue for transgenderism on the basis of this passage are being deeply dishonest. If people took Paul at his word, then you would have to say that Paul is arguing for an androgynous humanity, that there are no biological sexes at all. And this is clearly ridiculous and not what Paul is arguing. Paul is not arguing that two sexes or genders do not exist in humanity and neither do transgender proponents. Modern transgender proponents argue that a human being can swap their sex, but they use the word gender to cover over what they're really arguing. Paul's original audience would never in a million years have understood his argument as an endorsement to change your sex. This passage does not and will not support transgenderism. For the transgender lobby, your gender, your sex is the most important aspect of your identity. Paul is arguing the exact opposite. Paul is arguing that a person's sex or gender does not affect their identity in Christ. He is arguing that we are fully male and fully female and we cannot change what we are. And this passage assumes that we cannot change what we are. But he is arguing that what we are doesn't affect our identity with God. To use this passage to, for transgender is just deeply dishonest. 
Because understood in context, it is saying the exact opposite to what transgender proponents are actually arguing. Our identity in Christ supersedes every other relationship we have. Identity is a relational concept. This is the thing our culture misses about identity. It thinks about identity individualistically. It is my identity. It is who I am. But here is the thing about identity. Identity is always formed in relationship to and in contrast to other things and other people. The reality about identity is we cannot change our identity without affecting others around us. And because our culture has become so individualistic, the truth is out and out selfish, it misses this truth about identity. As human beings, we cannot change our identity without saying something to and about every single human being on the planet. This is why as Christians we must resist the transgender arguments because the arguments are not simply about who I am but also about what we are and what we are is determined by God. As Christians we need to be aware about this truth of the relational characteristics of identity as we are dependent upon this understanding, the relational nature of identity for our new identity in Christ. For our identity in Christ is not self-generated. It flows from the relationship we have with God through faith in Christ. Because we are saved by grace, we are now no longer slaves, but we are free. We are free from the law and we are sons through faith. That is our new identity with God, before God. All Christians are sons of God. And Paul is drawing on the cultural background of his day to make his point. In the culture of the day, the firstborn son would be the heir of the estate. He would inherit it all. He would receive the inheritance and all the other children. Bad luck for you. Paul's point, Paul points us to a better reality. He says that we are all sons. That is, we are all God's heirs. We have all received God's promises through faith in Christ. We are no longer under the slavery of the law because Christ's blood has redeemed us to God. It is with this understanding of sonship that Paul says in verses 3 through 5, in the same way we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. God has given us a new status in Christ. Note the word adoption at the end of verse 5. We're not born lovers of God. We have been adopted into this inheritance. Again, the adoption metaphor highlights the fact that we are not wanting to be a part of God's kingdom through our own means, by our own born status. Instead, we're adopted into this new family. 
We are not born wanting to rely or trust God. He transfers us into the kingdom of his sons. One of the main reasons, it seems to me, that people want to, a law to do is they want something that shows that they are worthy. And I get that. We hear all the time that there is nothing free in life. But in terms of our adoption, the price has been paid by Jesus. God gives us his salvation freely because he wants to show just how gracious he is. He wants to show his kindness to his people. And we are freely able to call our father Abba. The word Abba is an affectionate term for our father. It shows the close relationship we have with God. I don't think I can describe the joy I had at holding Benjamin, my firstborn son, in my arms when he was born. I cried. Here is my son whom I love. There was nothing I would not have done for him. My love for him and for each of my children the first time they were born and I held them in, the arms, in my arms. It was so overwhelming. That's God's love for us times a million. We are now God's children. We have a real relationship with God through faith in his son. We are God's relations. But now since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn again to weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? To be known in biblical terms is to be in relationship. God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows my faults. He knows my failings. He knows my strengths. He knows my weaknesses. He knows what will be good. He knows what will be bad for me. He knew all of that going into the relationship. He knows all your weaknesses. He knows all your faults. He knows how bad you can be. He knows how good you can be. And he knew all of that before the beginning of creation. And once you know that, once you know the depths of God's love for us in Christ, just understanding what he has done for us, our performance will never please God or make, us, make him love us anymore. Just remember that. There is nothing we can do to make God love us more that he hasn't already given us in Christ. That is the real relationship we have with God. From our side, that relationship goes up and down like a roller coaster. But from before creation, God has set his love on his people and his love is as, is as unwavering as air's rock in a windstorm. Given that, why would you go back to rule keeping why would you go back to slavery there are no rules that you can keep there are no rituals you can practice there are no desires that you can feel that can make god love you more there is nothing you can do to earn god's favor to do so is to place yourself in slavery once again i said this in my last talk and I've been thinking it this whole way through. 
why would anyone want to go back there? Rule keeping is no substitute for the real relationship we have with God in Christ Jesus our Lord. At the start of this talk, I spoke about anticipation, about looking forward to something great, like Christmas, a trip or a birthday. Now, this is going to sound a little strange, but I'm not hanging out to get to heaven or wherever it is God will place us when Jesus returns. Sure, I will be glad sin will be finally dealt with and death and sickness will be finally gone, but I'm not really excited about heaven or the new creation. And the reason is this, because in Christ, I already have more than I could possibly ask for. I have friends, I have great relationships, I have lots to do. But most of all, I have God's love, I have God's kindness, I have God's righteousness. I have God's forgiveness and God's love in Christ. I have a real relationship with God already today. When we think about heaven, yeah, I'm sure it'll be great but I already have something far, far more valuable. I am a son of God. You are sons of God. That is what should excite us. And God has already given us all of that in Christ. Rule keeping is no substitute for the real relationship we have with God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for your greatness. We thank and praise you for the love you have showered upon us in Christ. We thank and praise you for the real relationship we have now. Help us to be not foolish. Help us to not base our relationship upon our performance. Help us to know the great depths of your love for us in Christ. And help us to live that joy, that grace, that peace out today, knowing that that love can never be taken for us because it has been won by your Son through his death on the cross. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.